American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. I'd like to welcome everyone, friends, colleagues, fellow activists, to Saving CUNY's Past, the story of open admissions. My name is Andrea Addis Vasquez. I work at the American Social History Project here at the Graduate Center, which is sponsoring this event and coordinating the archive. ASHP is a public history and history education project that focuses on working people, and we've been affiliated with the City University of New York for over 30 years. Um, if anyone here or anyone out there is interested in tweeting, please use the hashtag CUNYDHA. So this event launches the CUNY Digital History Archive. We use the word launch in the sense that we're inviting the CUNY community and others who are interested to begin to tackle a problem that we've all been aware of for a while, that important parts of the history of CUNY are undocumented, lost, or inaccessible. Clearly, there are some wonderful and important materials in college libraries. Books and articles have been written, footage has been shot, and websites have been created on aspects of CUNY history. CUNY students have documented their own organizations and activities. The Professional Staff Congress, the Union of CUNY Staff and Faculty, recently formed an archives committee to document and archive its history. But the more we talk about this project, the more we hear about the stories that have not been recorded, the boxes have that, not, that have not been opened, and the con constituencies that have not been adequately represented. This is what inspired staff, faculty, and students from across the university to meet over the course of the past year and a half and conceive of a democratically realized digital archive. Many of these folks are here tonight and are listed on the back of your program. Now, I know that I'm preaching to the choir when I say that the historic mission of free quality education is as important today as ever. The active role that students, faculty, and staff have played in, the, in past struggles cannot be overstated. So clearly, we're ready to pay further attention to our many CUNY histories. Tonight, we've put together two roundtable discussions on topics that relate to this history. Between these panels, we'll have a short discussion of the CUNY Digital History Archive. We realize that we will only be scratching the surface of the topics we are discussing and the archive itself. For this reason, each of you have been given a contact card. We welcome your involvement, ideas, experiences, skills, and participation. Please fill out the card, and we'll be, we'll be collecting it from you when you leave tonight. And on the program, you'll see a link to a website where you can see slightly longer bios about all of the t speakers tonight, and also a link to a similar form that you can point others to. So Steve Breyer and Cynthia Tobar have put together terrific panels, and we'll be hearing about the kinds of events, stories, and materials that we envision can be incorporated into the archive. Audience participation is crucial tonight. We're eager to hear your responses to the roundtable discussions and also to your thoughts about the archive. But we should also keep in mind that this is only the first public event about CUNY and this archive. So this is the format that the that moderators have decided on. Each will introduce their topic, after which each guest will have five to six minutes to speak, and then the moderator will have a few questions for guests, and each panel will be followed by a short Q&A. In order to maximize your participation, um, audience questions will be limited to two minutes. So I want to thank everyone who has participated and agreed to be a part of this panel. 
Um, I want to thank Penny Bender, who will be keeping time and signaling to the speakers about the time. And uh, thank you all for attending. Without further ado, I hand this over to Steve Breyer and his panel. Thank you, Andrea. I thought because we're talking about the history of CUNY tonight, um, and we have the first panel on the struggle for open admissions, I'm not sure everybody knows uh, much about the history of CUNY. Obviously, some people do. So I thought I would take a few moments and sketch out some large themes and developments in the history of the City University that might be of use as a framing device for what we're going to hear tonight from our panelists. So let me just give you a brief background. Um, the origins of the City University are in the founding of the Free Academy in 1847, the institution that became the City College, the mission of which was to educate the children of the whole people, as, as one of its uh, original um, leaders uh, suggested. Um, that was a school basically for boys. Hunter, not originally called Hunter, but what became Hunter was founded in 1870, and that was essentially free public education in New York City for almost a, a, a century, from 1847 to the 1930s. Those were the two institutions that existed in CUNY. Hunter, which was a normal school, a school to educate women who often went on to teaching careers and, and, and city, um, was an all-boys school. That didn't change until well into the 20th century. Um, CUNY was... Interesting in part because it was based on, a, on, a, on the concept of free tuition and it was supported by taxation in New York City alone. There was some, uh, you know, in, some funding from the state legislature, but not an enormous amount um, over the first, you know, essentially 60, 70 years of its existence. But when the city started to grow, particularly in the 20th century, it's clearly these two campuses, however important they were, were insufficient to meet the needs for higher education in the city. Won't go into any detail, but in the 1930s, finally Brooklyn College and then Queens College were founded. So those are the four original senior colleges of what would become the city university. Um, and, uh, and those are the, the kind of the, the original basis for what CUNY would become. Um, by the sort of um, time of the 1930s and 40s, these four municipal colleges, for all their openness and tuition-free status, educated a relatively small slice of New York City's population, largely working and some middle class and heavily Jewish by 1940. The total number of undergrads at the four municipal colleges on the eve of World War II was about 50,000, not even close to meeting the demand for higher education in the city. Following the war, as you all know, there was a massive influx of new immigrants from the South, the African Americans from the Caribbean, as well as Puerto Ricans um, from the Caribbean um, after the war. And that changed the calculus of what the municipal colleges were supposed to do and were able to do. That mass migration and the out-migration of large number of, of, of white New Yorkers to the suburbs um, and to New Jersey um, led to dramatic mass struggles for integration. The transformation of the public schools was profound in this period, starting in the primary and secondary schools, but, but also the, 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 the same issues affected CUNY. Um, in the public schools, this began a long fight to integrate that started right after the Brown v. Board decision, or even before, actually. Um, and then extended to CUNY, which was where most of the graduates from city's public schools went to college. But as they are today, the New York City public schools did a deplorable job preparing the city's 
one million plus public school students, especially those of color for higher education. CUNY therefore, and this is an important thing, inaugurated important programs in the mid-1960s, especially SEEK, which stands for Search for Education, Elevation, and Knowledge, and College Discovery, designed to help high school students make a successful transition to college. David Henderson, who's one of the people on the panel, um, was, a, was a person who worked at SEEK at City College in these years. SEEK was inspired in, in large measure by Mina Shaughnessy, one of the important educators and pedagogues um, that CUNY has ever developed, and, and her philosophies about teaching writing and about how writing could be used to educate students are, are, are still important, um, you know, 50 years later. Um, SEEK was also, as you'll hear, a site of activism, not only at City College, but at Queens and at Brooklyn and a range of other places where those uh, uh, institutions um, had SEEK programs. Um, let me back a, track a few years, because at this point, in 1961, this is when CUNY, what we, we think of today, is actually created. CUNY as an institution is just barely 50 years old. And it, it, it's founded in concert with the founding uh, or the expansion of the State University of New York under the governorship of Nelson Rockefeller. It's a huge sort of uh, need to expand public higher education in the post-war period, not only in New York, but in states across the country. And this was the moment when CUNY comes together um, as an overarching institution in 1961. I want to say one, a couple of words about the, one of the first chancellors of CUNY, Albert Bowker, who was chancellor from 1963 to 1971. He understood early on when he took the position the need to dramatically expand CUNY to use state funding to build out the new campuses, including construction of community colleges and other senior colleges, and to hire new faculty. Bowker, supported by key aides like Julius C.C. Edelstein, also understood how segregated CUNY was in the early 1960s, that the percentage of blacks and Puerto Ricans attending, already tiny in the 1950s, actually dropped throughout the decade of the 1960s because of higher admission standards that the senior colleges imposed for entry into their institutions. Bowker convinced a reluctant board of higher education, that's the institution before the current board of trustees, in the late 1960s to agree to open CUNY campuses to admission of greater numbers of city high school grads, especially students of color, which was targeted to begin in 1975. This decision was made in the late 60s with a, a window of about six or seven years to build out this sort of open admissions idea. But as those of you who know the history of the 1960s will not be surprised, that was not a quiet period in city, national, or even international politics. And Bowker was all too aware of the volatile political and racial context in the city and the country. And let me just take a minute and remind you what was going on in this period of 1968-69. January 68 is the Tet Offensive by the Viet Cong, which proves a serious setback for the US war effort in Vietnam. March of 1968, Eugene McCarthy gets 40% of the New Hampshire Democratic Party vote. Robert Kennedy announces his candidacy. Lyndon Johnson decides not to run for re-election. April of 1968, Martin Luther King is assassinated in Memphis. In the same month, the, CUNY, the Columbia University SDS strike. In May, Paris student uprising leads to general strikes across France. In June, RFK is assassinated in Los Angeles. In August, Soviet Union invades Czechoslovakia. Anti-war demonstrators in Chicago police clash at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. 
This is also a very important context, the next item. From September 7th through November 19th, 1968, the New York City United Federation of Teachers Strike against community control of the New York City public schools shuts down schools across the five boroughs, affecting 1.1 million school children. September 1968, the Women's Liberation Movement targets the Miss America pageant. In October, Mexican military shoot down students demonstrating in Mexico City. In November, Nixon defeats Humphrey and the, by the narrowest margin in US electoral history. Uh, in June of 69, the Stonewall Uprising in Greenwich Village launches the Gay Liberation Movement. And then for our purposes, in January to September 1969, CUNY student and faculty protests at CCNY, Brooklyn, and Queens, and other campuses lead to the implementation of open admissions at CUNY, this decision that was made to accelerate the, uh, the, the open admissions uh, uh, the idea at CUNY from 1975 to 1970, which is meant, which actually starts in the fall of 1970. So all of this is the background for what this panel will be discussing tonight, which is the fight for open admissions at CUNY in 1969-70, its implementation after 1970, and the struggle to strengthen CUNY up to 1976, when CUNY and free tuition hits the wall of the New York City fiscal crisis. So that's a kind of breathless summary of, what, uh, of the history leading up to this event. And to discuss various aspects of this, there are five people on the, on the panel tonight. Um, and I will uh, suggest the order of, of speaking. Charles Powell, who's the second person to my left, was a student at CCNY and an activist in the struggles at CCNY. David Henderson, who was a Sikh worker in 1968-1970 at CCNY, will speak second. Um, Third will be uh, Tony Picciano, who's next to, to uh, 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 David, um, who was a student and then a faculty member, and is a CUNY lifer, has been at CUNY for, uh, you know, since basically the mid-1960s, so he's got a lot of history to talk about. Um, he will be followed by Gerald Meyer, who's right here, who was a, a founding faculty member at Hostos and was actively involved in the struggle at Hostos, which he will tell you about. And last but certainly not least, Pedro Pedraza, who's in the center, who was uh, one of the founding members of the Centro uh, for Puerto Rican Studies um, at Hunter College. We'll talk about events at Hunter College. So without further ado, let me ask um, Charles to speak first. Uh, thank you, Steve. I, I will actually, I saw the timer raising your expiration <laughs> of time. So I'll actually, even for that magnificent uh, history that you just provided. I got chills just really listening to it because it did help to put into context where we were in 1969. Um, um, when I became a student um, in uh, the uh, fall of 1968, of course, things had changed radically for those of us who were Black at that time, African-American, you know, the loss of Martin Luther King uh, Jr. was, you know, was uh, impactful for all of us. I actually came from a historical black college that was shut down in April of 1969 as a result of the assassination. I came home to an area of Lenox Avenue, um, which was in flames. Um, so, you know, hopes and aspirations were dashed, and then all of a sudden, someone familiarized me with City College and CUNY. 
So I went as an evening student and had the opportunity to matriculate. I can say without any question, I was one of those students who would not have gotten a college education, but, it, but not for the fact that I was able to go to that school tuition free. Um, that just wouldn't have happened. And I can say, I'm sure David will tell us a lot more about that, but without even the support of the SEEK program and others, you know, who pioneers just the opportunity for us to be able to be there. So I just wanted to make the point, this is about lives and futures and dreams and aspirations that were able to be realized through this particular institution. So when I arrived, of course, we had already been the students. I was a Black Panther and, you know, we always reminded ourselves, you know, you have, if you know City College, you're down the hill and then you have up the hill. And, you know, you look up the hill at this beautiful place and you never really felt like that was a place for you. So, you know, you had the valley and then you had the hill. So in going up the hill, um, you know, I, I arrived there and, you know, completely fell far into the environment until I met my fellow students, fairly as you were able to meet them in a population that was 99 or 98 percent white. And then you saw the sprinkling of a few black and Latino students. So that was the, you know, the, the demographic, you know, of the, of the population. There were five demands that actually open admissions was one of. So the other demands, black and, 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 you know, and Puerto Rican studies, I guess it's more politically, you know, correct to say that it would be Latino studies, but, you know, back in those days, I mean, everybody, you know, pretty much says Puerto Rican, you know, in terms of our group. So we were the black and Puerto Rican student community. And so we made those demands and we engaged in, uh, from January up to this time in April, you know, some forays, you know, as Steve mentioned, you know, student action, taking over classrooms, taking over the administration building, you know, organizing and, and, you know, working with faculty, names of individuals who are heroes, you know, to me who are on the faculty, people like Alfred Conrad from the economics department, uh, we had Wilfred Carty there, the famed poet. Um, you know, all of these were part of our group. And they had been actually doing their job of putting together the statistical information, you know, regarding what our demands represented. So ultimately, you know, uh, the beleaguered but the beloved to me, Leonard Jeffries was actually, David, if you remember, he was in, he was just a, uh, in the political science department. So he wasn't really there. So we put these demands out and, you know, we decided on an April day, you know, that we would actually attempt, if you know the City College of New York, you know, they had a, it's kind of like a gated community, right? One in which we know that none of the people in that community ever had access to. So one of the things that I want you to realize in terms of a human factor, our open admissions campaign was not just for us to come in, but for the community to be able to be a part of that, you know, particular, you know, beautifully landscape structured. The president's house was there, the, you know, the other things, the library, the gym, all of the things that the people in that community never had. So when we decided one day, um, early five o'clock, we had cells and we came out and we said we would take over the campus. We anticipated probably being there for about three or four hours. We ended up staying there for two weeks. Uh, the outpouring of support from the community, they became our protectors. Um, and so therefore, we were able to negotiate our demands, actually, with Buell Gallagher, if you remember him. He was our president then. 
Um, he was ahead of, he was on the board of the NAACP, and then Copeland came along and things went downhill from there. Um, so yes, so we had our demands. I just want to say something about open admissions because I know our, my time is getting short. Um, again, we had no anticipation of viewing open admissions from the point of its impact by the imposition of tuition. Uh, I actually came back, I went to law school after that, I came back and I taught at uh, City College in the, what was then the Black Studies Department, a course on racism, American legal system, and I worked with students from that first uh, imposition of tuition, we fought it in the courts, uh, we lost, uh, but we were naive, you know, we weren't politically savvy, and I think it, it's important to understand just how savvy some of the students are today. I've been proud to be engaged in student action up until the present time. One other hero of mine before my time goes out, who's still engaged, who I think is my role model, and I wish he was here to even just say a few words, is attorney Ron McGuire, who still represents the students, who still does disciplinary actions, which we did together. And again, you know, this fight is one that must continue. And I'm so grateful to be here and be part of this august panel today. Thank you. Well, um, you know, uh, I must say, uh, this is David Henderson here, and I would not, I wasn't going to be on the panel with Drew because um, I have to tell you, I couldn't believe that you're just beginning to do this. It just seems unbelievable to me. And so that was one of the reasons why I, I just couldn't deal with this or prepare for what would be a very brief time. But, you know, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm able to uh, follow uh, Mr. Mr. Powell. Uh, I grew up uh, on Hamilton Terrace in Harlem. I was born there. And Hamilton Terrace faces what is now the engineering building. Mm -hmm. And I rode my bike on the campus as a child. So as, you, as I could see now, I didn't really realize I was familiar with that territory very well mm -hmm. and felt very comfortable there. But of course, if you know Harlem in terms of Sugar Hill, that's where City College is. It's, it's, um, there's a park that goes from 126 to 141st Street, a colonial park, and it's a cliff. And you have to share this cliff to get to City College, and it's so it's a it's an impenetrable barricade essentially. Um, you know, there's a stairway on 135th Street, but it is separated from Harlem. And then if you go up on Convent Avenue or Amsterdam Avenue, there's these hills. It, it comes up, even from Broadway, it comes up. So it's kind of like a little citadel on the hill, so to speak. Okay, um, I was not a Sikh worker. I taught in the Sikh program, and maybe that is a Sikh worker. But that's why I came from the Lower East Side in the poetry program and was asked to teach in the Sikh program in 67. When I got there right at the time that Langston Hughes died. In fact, we were at his funeral. I went from his funeral, which is right down 141st Street and St. Nicholas Avenue, up to the meeting at, um, in City College, in the engineering building, by the way. Taught in Sikh program, which was admitting students uh, from, who had two, two years of high school. The high schools were so bad, it was understood that they were just coming into the program, and we were dealing with them and really having a lot of success with them. And they had counseling. It was a very uh, beautiful uh, program. Uh, I got to say that uh, during that time, of course, uh, the Harlem riots had occurred in 1964. This was in the height of the Civil Rights Movement, and 
there was no, there were very few black people, black faculty to that point. So this was a very strange time because we come into these meetings, they came and got me from, you know, I don't know where they found, you know, me, I just published my first book uh, in 1967. And when I got there, I met uh, Barbara Christian, Addison Gale, and, some, and Tony Cade, Bambara, some mm. other faculties who would be very crucial right. to this whole strike. And one thing that prompts me to be here today is because most of them are dead. Wow. And nothing, and nothing, I, there must have there not been anything to gather uh, whatever uh, they have. I mean, I would consider and look to look into their archives, their letters. You know, I know the University of California has Barbara Christian's um, letters. Wilfred Carty, who uh, I understand his papers are in Trinidad, mm-hmm. who ran the whole thing and was brilliant. Mm-hmm. You know, and and poor Alf and 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 Adrian Rich, who was his wife. None of these faculty people were prepared to do a strike. They did not train to do a strike, so this really had a big impact upon them. Besides, which they were jeopardizing their careers. So this was so stressful, and when Alf killed himself, that just that really hit us hard. And of course, we had to move forward. And poor Adrian. You know, I just met Pablo, uh, Adrian's son, the other day at the Chapel Festival. And uh, thanks to uh, Lost and Found, that's the only reason I'm even around on this campus in some uh, uh, strange way or uh, way. In fact, we're having an event tomorrow uh, here in the same room uh, to, sun, to uh, Sunrise 100th birthday, whoever you know who he is. And we're having a panel with Greg Tate and the biographer from Yale, John Sved. Okay, 68. To my recollection, we were doing this in 68. And when we went, took vegetables, food over to the Columbia University students, uh, we were engaged in something. Okay, so that was, that was happening. 69, I think by 69, we won. And the reason that we won was because two things. One, I was the press guy. I had, to, I controlled, did, we did the press conferences. We never lied to the press. We did research, excellent research. And we contended with the uh, board, what do they call them? The, uh, the board, the, the, the board of trustees, whatever. Or higher education. And who lied continuously throughout the whole thing. And we beat them fair and square on the facts. And so uh, we didn't expect, and that was part of our naivete, that they would stab us in the back on the other end, as would happen. But, but we won, and that was a great victory. And there was Addison Gale, Barbara Christian, Wilfred Carty, Tony K. Bumba, the great bunch of faculty people who deserve to be remembered, if only for that. Uh, so, so let me con- try to conclude. Um, uh, um, so although it is hard to believe, I hope that we're able to, to do this uh, in, in a sense to make this archive possible, and I have decided to do my own archive independently of this because I'm not sure that even if when this happens that the public will have access to this stuff. Because I know right now I can't go in the library, you know. And so I want to make sure that the public is aware of this. And another thing, then probably the most important thing, yes, it was the, 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 we want to open admissions and African American and Puerto Rican studies program, which are not happening. And I can see it today. One thing that shocks me, because we went out to California, by the way, but one thing that shocks me when I'm here is that there has been no development of African-Americana over the years. This is 40 years. Nothing. And it's very clear to me. It's so clear that there's nothing here 
uh, for, off of Puerto Rican. But when we went to University of California, there is a PhD program in African American studies. They have to do the whole gamut. And that could have been the same thing here. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. Uh, my name is Tony Picciano, and um, my good colleague Steve Breyer likes to refer to me as a CUNY lifer. He does that over and over again, um, and that's true. I probably bleed CUNY blue, um, but uh, I've had, uh, I owe a lot to City University. I'm very proud of it. I've been affiliated with uh, seven of the colleges. I've been hired and fired in, in various ways, and I'm proud of all of that, um, but uh, uh, I started in my first connection with City University was at Hunter College as a student in 1965. I was born and raised in the South Bronx, um, very modest family. CUNY was basically my only option, and I'm very proud of that. Uh, I did go to Catholic schools. I went to Cardinal Spelman High School in the North Bronx, the same school as uh, Supreme Court Justice uh, Sotomayor went to. It was a very selective school um, and uh, very competitive school in terms of, uh, of, of grading and what have you. You knew your ranking in every marking period. Um, but when I got to Hunter College for the orientation in May of 1965, uh, it was actually was a different place. Um, I have to say there were more black and Latino students in my selective Catholic high school than there was in that auditorium at Hunter College. Uh, the guy still wore cardigan sweaters with circles on the on, on, on the sleeves, and the and the woman wore skirts and white shoes. And uh, Dean Edith Capel, who was the dean of academic standards, said, "Look to your left, look to your right. One of you will not be here next year." And that was that was our, my introduction to Hunter College. Uh, uh, and so and some of us were kind of nervous, but uh, we survived. Uh, I I. Uh, I spent some of my time at Hunter in downtown, and then I gravitated to Hunter College in the Bronx, which evolved into Lehman College. It started in 1968, and by that time I had uh, gotten a position in the computer center as a student aide, which quickly uh, evolved into a uh, full-time position. Uh, at that time, computers were kind of new, and if you can do anything that printed something and it looked right, People were impressed, uh, but it was it was one of those uh, occupations that, through accidents, turned out to be an interesting life work for me. But in that time, in uh, 68, 69, uh, I developed a relationship with uh, the director of SEEK, Leo Corby. Some of you might know Leo. He's passed on. Uh, we were both, the reason we, we became friendly was we were in a, a little temporary Quonset hut building in the in the garage in the parking lot of Lehman College or what became Lehman College. Uh, that building was supposed to be there for ten years. That building still is there, uh, so it's lasted about forty some odd years. It's called the Reservoir Building. But I got to talking with Leo just in the hallways and whatever, and he got me into uh, tutoring for the Seek program, and uh, and I did that for a number of years, and I really enjoyed it very much in terms of working with. Uh, black and Latino students at that time and writing. I was a, I was a political science major. But in terms of the uh, open admissions, the fight for open admissions at Hunter in the Bronx slash Lehman College, it was, there was nowhere near the passion that there was at City College. Um, uh, I would say for every faculty member or student who was for it, there was at least one or more faculty member or students who were against it. Uh, 
the feeling was, you know, they had, they had worked the meritocracy, they were there, and, and that's the way it should be. So while there were demonstrations at Lehman College, uh, I don't think they were anywhere near what they were at City College. Uh, that's, my, that's my feeling about it. Uh, when I graduated from Hunter, I never had a black professor or a Latino professor uh, in, in, in any of my studies. And I majored in political science, minored in history. Um, I gravitated, uh, and anyhow, uh, I'm sorry, before um, I go on, I was gonna go to Meg Erbis, but let me just say one thing, because uh, one of the, the things I want to address is that uh, was, open admissions really funded well in its early years. It's my impression at Lehman College that it was. Um, there, was a, there was a significant amount of new positions in terms of, of faculty hires, administrative support. I mean, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I know in the departments I work with, our, our budgets doubled and tripled on the administrative side. I think there were about 40 or 50 faculty hired uh, mostly in in uh, in language English and mathematics to do a lot of the remedial work. Uh, faculty were brought in to do advisement in the summer, which was unheard of back then. Uh, so I thought in the initial years there was a lot of funding coming in to make this experiment succeed. Uh, and I think if that had continued beyond 75, we may have had a different story about open admissions and, and remediation in CUNY. But in any case, uh, in 75, I ended up working at Meg Revis College, uh, which was a great experience for me, having come from where I was and having uh, working in Bedford-Stuy, in the, in the middle of Bedford-Stuy with uh, basically an all-black uh, faculty and student body, not entirely, but 95%. And I would have to say one of the uh, really interesting aspects of my time at Meg Evers was when um, the, it was the fiscal crisis, and it was very clear that uh, there was a real possibility of, of colleges closing. I have to say it was one of CUNY's darker moments, not only because of the fiscal crisis, but CUNY as, an as, a, as a university was not together. Uh, faculty and administrators were calling for closing of other colleges, and being at Megra Evers, that was one of the newer, younger colleges, and there was lots of our colleagues around the university was calling for the closing of Mega Rivers, Hostos, John Jay, Richmond College, all the newer colleges. And I think that uh, one of the, the moments that I really appreciate at that time was that there was a march of these colleges from wherever they existed. And for us, it was on, in uh, Carroll Avenue in Bedford-Stuy. And uh, pretty much, I would say about 50% of the college marched down Flatbush Avenue over the Brooklyn Bridge. And we met with our colleagues from Hostos and from John Jay uh, at uh, City Hall. And I think that was a very important moment in CUNY for saving those particular colleges. And if you look at the, at the legislation that basically established the new CUNY as a, as a, as a entity of the state, there's legislation there protecting Hostos and Megrevis College put in there by the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus. Uh, so I happen to think that uh, that period was a very interesting period. Um, I'm proud of the time that I had from Hunter through Lehman and Megrevis. And I think that last period at Evers was something very important. Thank you. Hi, I'm Gerald Meyer from Ostos Community College, the People's College, and uh, I'm happy to be here. Um, I have five minutes to talk. 
it reminds me, I was, uh, had to speak I, at memorial meetings. I get asked to speak at more and more memorial meetings. I'm sort of like a secular minister of some sort, secular minister, a reconstructionist rabbi, I don't know what. But in any case, uh, something obscure, but uh, that, you know, that leftists would feel comfortable with. And a very, very famous person, Nettie Rubenstein, she died when she was 97. I was given 10 years, you know, one minute for every decade, you know. Anyway, so, uh, <laughs> the, so the, uh, the Save Ostos movement was a five-year-long movement. So I have one minute, now less than that, for each year. Well, uh, in any case, in order to make this uh, manageable, I'd like to point out that I, I did write a, a rather really extensive article about the Save Ostos movement, and that appeared in the Central Journal, wonderful, wonderful journal, uh, in uh, the spring of, uh, of 2003. So in the spring uh, edition of the Central Journal, you can find an article, Save Ostos, Politics and Community, Mobilization to Save a College in the Bronx, 73 to 78. And um, somehow, I think I, I think I know why, but I, uh, I collected everything. I'm not a collector particularly. I collect depression glass. Putting it on a shelf was a major piece of my coming out, I want you to know. But, <laughs> but aside from that, as a kid, I collected stamps. But I'm not a collector particularly at all. And, uh, but I somehow collected everything. And, uh, and I think I had the college's archive, <laughs> you know. Uh, and uh, our archivist is here, uh, Professor William Cassari. Please stand up, William, stand, please. Come, my colleague. And uh, we have an archivist, uh, Professor Kasari, and he's very uh, dedicated to, to the archive, and we work very, very closely together. And uh, I won't go through the, the hairy dog part of the story, but by some good fortune and some, some serendipity, uh, this collection of mine managed to become unearthed. It actually started from a very small conference, something like this, and it led to grants, run three or four different grants. And it's a very a large collection. And um, you can find that at the Ostos archives. And then within the Ostos archives, there's a Gerald J. Meyer collection. And I was really, really saved a lot of good stuff. And uh, so we have that. And uh, anyone that's interested in using the archive can speak to Bill after this talk, speak to me. You can find it online. The library you can find through student activities or something, or student services. This is, I don't, don't understand that. But in any case, if you went to our website, you could locate the archive in that way, circuitous way. But um, so we have the archive, we have the article, and uh, it's a very big story. The Save Ostos movement was uh, really five years long. And it was, I think, one of the most uh, extended movements uh, in modern New York history. I don't know, I don't really know one that would rival it that went on that long. I think there was trade union movements that had social aspects to it, like the unionization of the uh, not-for-profit hospitals by uh, Local 99, 1199. But uh, that would be similar. But this was a local, a local uh, campaign, a local movement uh, which resonated throughout the uh, Puerto Rican community, especially uh, in the city of New York. Um, 
Oswitz Community College is a product of open admissions. It never would have existed had open admissions not occurred. Uh, it just wouldn't have been there. And, um, and it, it really, in some ways, is a very Greek, I think, uh, a kind of a manifestation of the best aspects of what people were hoping from open admissions, to tell you the truth. I mean, it was, it was located in what is uh, in the South Bronx, which has the lowest incomes of any community, really, in the, the city of New York, and over half the population were immigrants, and it's essentially a bilingual community. And by locating it right in the center of that community, not on the periphery, as even City College was, mm -hmm. but right in the heart of it, right in the hub, in a sense, of the South Bronx. I can't do this in two minutes. That's impossible. <laughs> I just started. <laughs> I, 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 I trust that's true. <laughs> anyway, but it, okay, we have to. All right, but uh, to abbreviate this somehow, uh, I think what you had is a school which, from its from its origins, uh, was progressive by its very nature, um, because to be, we're in that community in the creation of the school. Uh, we developed an educational program that was really quite extraordinary, that we weren't inheriting. We weren't inheriting an, another campus. We weren't moving into somebody else's institution. We did it from de ovo. And as a result, we really became the first bilingual college uh, in the country, perhaps except for Miami-Dade, but, but we really became a thoroughly bilingual college. I mean, you could study calculus and biology, history, anything you could imagine in Spanish. And you could also take Spanish for, for, uh, for students that had a fluency in day-to-day -day Spanish but didn't know the language formally. Uh, it was incredibly progressive. Uh, for the students that were English dominant, uh, we really had a massive program uh, to deal with the students' problems with writing, to connect uh, the English course with the content courses so that the students would have content to write about and have uh, an adult experience while they were developing language skills. It was, it was a very, very advanced. I think the, the, the naming of the school for Henio Maria de Ostos was critical. You know, a very, very great figure, great progressive uh, person uh, that died. He died in 1903, but an advocate for Puerto Rico's independence and uh, uh, I, you know, a man of letters, a positivist, uh, extraordinary figure, and, and, and particularly having a great deal to say about education, um, co-education, -edu co and very advanced pedagogy. Just very briefly, there were three movements. Uh, the first would be in 1973, where uh, there was a mass movement to obtain facilities for the college. And within four or five months, we got a building. Through, uh, through a massive campaign, we went to the community. I won't go through all the details that's in the article, but it was an extraordinary movement. And we got the New York State to modify its budget. On the last day of the budget, we went up to Albany with, a, with buses of, of, uh, from our college. And the, again, the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus got a modification of the uh, budget for City University and said that the Black and Puerto Rican caucus wouldn't vote for the budget unless the building was included. So we got the money for the building. 
But in 75, 76, during the fiscal crisis, it, it, it became obvious that it was a Pyrrhic victory because we're going to close the college. The college was officially closed by a resolution of the board in June 6, 1976. And through this astounding campaign, uh, which was on a massive, massive level, and reached out into the community, uh, that, was, uh, that was reversed, and the college was saved. In the 78-79, there was a third movement, which obtained funding to renovate the building we had won in 73, and that really secured the college. We were in one building with a 10-year lease, and we were, that was going to be the lifespan of the college. The college is still there. We've graduated more Latinos than any other college in the United States of America. And, uh, but there's been a lot of slippage in terms of um, the pedagogy, in terms of the educational program, in terms of Latino and uh, black studies and so on. But it's a great, great people's victory. And seeing how that victory occurred is important to us because we need victories very, very badly. Thanks. My name is Pedro Pedraza. Um, formerly of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies at Hunter College. I retired a couple of years ago from the Centro, but I was one of the founding members of the Centro back in 1973. And uh, I'd like to begin my talk about uh, open admissions and the Centro by first placing myself historically in this context that you so uh, well laid out. Um, I was born and raised in, in New York City um, of Puerto Rican parents, so second generation by my father's side third generation from my mother's side. They came at the end of World War II on a boat from Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, raised in a New York City housing project, low-income housing project on the west side, Amsterdam Houses, the second or third project built by the New York City Housing Authority. And uh, went to the New York City public school system all the way through high school and ended up going to, of all places, Los Angeles Occidental College for my undergraduate degree with a Rockefeller Foundation grant that they gave to minority students to integrate the school at the time. I didn't realize it when I, when I went there, but that's what it was. Uh, when I came back in 19, I came back to the city in 1968 to begin graduate studies in sociology, a PhD program in sociology at Columbia. And uh, when I came back, I started looking for uh, student activism, because at Occidental I got very active uh, in student activism around the... Uh, uh, UMAS, United, United Mexican American Students, and we supported the Great Strike, Cesar Chavez, et cetera, uh, the Black Student Union. And there was a very small contingent of SDS people at, at Occidental, a place where um, Lyndon Johnson, when he won the landslide against Barry Goldwater, they had a, an, an election at Occidental and Barry Goldwater won. So that'll give you, that'll give you an idea of what Occidental was like in the, in, 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 in yeah, it was like at that time. It's very different now. It's very much into and, and very different in curriculum and everything else. But at that time, it was just beginning to change. And uh, so I came back to New York and I was looking for where was the student activism. To make a long story short, I found the Puerto Rican Students' Union. Now, the Puerto Rican Students' Union, this is in 68-69, uh, the Puerto Rican Students' Union was started uh, by the Young Lords Party. The Young Lords organized the Puerto Rican students because after the struggle at City College, uh, many of those leaders, Puerto Rican students in that, in that, in that, can, that struggle there at City College, affiliated themselves with the Young Lords, and they decided to create and one of their mass organizations, which is a student organization, PRSU, Puerto Rican Students' Union. 
and the Puerto Rican Students Union, when I joined, uh, was still part of, of the Young Lords Party, but about six months later, there was an amicable separation where the Puerto Rican Student Union stayed on its own, and the Young Lords Party continued uh, on its own as well, and that, that history a lot of people know about. But the uh, Puerto Rican Student Union was, was, and the Young Lords, to their credit, were the only ones organizing the influx of Puerto Rican students into CUNY. And we had chapters at Lehman, Bronx Community, City College, Queens College, Brooklyn College, Merrill Manhattan Community College, and I helped form a contingent at Columbia University. It was at a private college. And at that, and when we did that, uh, with Puerto Rican Students Union with the Latin American, LASA, Latin American Studies Association there, uh, at, at, at Columbia, we tried to get Columbia to start a, 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 a Latino study center there. They, we didn't win that one, but in that process, we gathered some Puerto Rican intellectuals who would be the board and members of perhaps of the faculty of such a center. One was Frank Bonilla, who became the founding director of the Center for Puerto Rican Studies. Now, I, um, I'm going to shift a little bit now to, to talk about how I know, got also was engaged with, with uh, open admissions. At Columbia University, I had a professor who was a visiting professor in the University of Pennsylvania, who when he left Columbia I mean, as a visiting professor, got a job at CUNY to do research in open admissions. His name was Dr. David Lavin, a sociologist who did research on open admissions. He hired, I was a student in his class, he hired me as a research assistant. So as his research assistant, I went out, I was the guy who went out to the, to the campuses and checked, uh, random, random checking of the data to make sure it's correct and accurate, et cetera. And uh, in that process, um, I found out a lot about what open admissions was about. I went on to every campus to do this, and I met the, the uh, researchers on every campus. And uh, I think what Tony was saying is true, very much true. Uh, for the first, I say to at least 75, 76, up to the, uh, the city fiscal crisis, CUNY had really funded open admissions in the way I think it, it should. It has never been funded since then, but it should have been. And, and I could see that in, in, in these visits to the campuses. And um, the, the interesting thing about one of the, I have to say this, because one of the interesting things about this is, although the African-American and Puerto Rican students at City College and their protests there and closing down the city that pushed the open admissions agenda speed it up because there was a plan in place right. to do this gradually, speed it up from five five or seven years to one year, from one year to the next. Uh, and David Lavin always said this, but it never seemed to cap be, people never seemed to capture it, that although it came from that initiative, the, at least up until 60, 76, 77, the people who most benefited from open admissions was the working class, Catholic, Irish, Italian working class in terms of numbers. The percentages of Puerto Ricans and blacks that went into, into the university, they, they, that was a big leap. I mean, there was no, no other gain percentage-wise than what happened with Puerto Ricans and Latinos. And, uh, well, Puerto Ricans then, they still were not Latinos at that time. And then African Americans. But in, but in terms of actual quantity, it was the working class of New York City that benefited from the expansion of City University, and that was Italian, and mainly Italian-Irish, at least up until the late in the 70s. And nobody really seems to capture that, that that's who really benefited most of uh, the perception in, in, the, in the public is that it was, a, it was a freebie for the black and Puerto Ricans. Mm -hmm. and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, well, and free tuition for us is a freebie, but before that it was a tradition. Mm -hmm. So um, <laughs> this, that, it, this... Uh, I, I, mean, I can't. I can't continue. But that's uh, basically. So I wanted. 
the center itself, one more point about the center itself, it was these students, activists, and advocates in the community that created in Lehman College a proposal for a center to study the Puerto Rican experience here in the United States. Because those uh, students on every campus asked for a curriculum reflecting their history and experiences, and Puerto Rican studies programs and departments were created. They hired faculty from Puerto Rico. They came here. Lo and behold, there was still an interesting problem. They know nothing about our experience in, in the United States. So something had to be done to fill that gap, and that's why the center was created. But it was created by, since it was these people, the leftists, and the, basically it was the left of the Puerto Rican community that created the Center for Puerto Rican Studies, and that's why it started off as a Marxist or a Marxist-oriented institution for research and develop, and engaging the community in its practices from organization through theoretical, through research, everything. There was a board, a community board, that directed the center through its first ten years. All right. <laughs> to the panelists for both your discipline and keeping on time and, and your, your wonderfully insightful comments. We have, um, we have a chance for a little bit of crosstalk on the panel. Not a lot because we want to give the audience a chance to ask questions of the, of the panelists. So I will just ask one question of each of you and ask you to speak very briefly on it. It's a big question. Sort of given what we've heard on the panel tonight, what are the larger lessons that come out of the open admissions struggle? for CUNY in our own time. What, what do you, as, as activists who are involved in this, what do you take away from that? What are the one or two critical lessons that need to be sort of remembered and learned from, from the experience that you describe? Why don't we just start in the order? Charles, why don't you, why don't you start first? Well, clearly for, for me, it was the fact that we had no idea or concept of the economics of the entire thing. Um, the lesson that I would get is what I know students are really addressing, and I'm so glad to hear about the, the hostel struggles and the Lehman College experiences, because that tells you the progression. You know, those of us who were there 68, 69, I mean, we were really dealing with it more philosophically. Open admissions was, again, a concept, even though we had an idea of what was going on throughout the entire city system, not one of us ever sat down and said, how is this thing going to continue to be funded? So I think it is the awareness of all politics are local. You know, um, the trips that are now being taken to Albany and those, you know, the connections between making sure that we're electing people, you know, who are in fact in Albany that are responsive to us, that has to be progressively addressed. So again, to me, it was the issue of economics. Well, uh, my takeaway, um, we got de Blasio as the mayor and um, Cuomo as the governor, and I do believe that they appoint the people who run this place. And so... The 10 of the 15. 10 of the 15, okay. The, the governor, 10, the mayor, 5. Okay, well, so this, I think it's very clear. I think it's that if the people really want to see some progressive change here, which I think is really important, it's obvious that that can be a way of, of, of making uh, something happen. You know, and I think it, it, it's obvious, it's a great story. The whole story is a great story, and it's obvious that it would be for the benefit of the city of New York that it, that it happens justifiably in a good way. 
Um, I would say two things that come to mind. One was, again, uh, I was at Lehman at the time, and again, Lehman did not have the passion that was evident at City College. But I thought that something which I don't, uh, we haven't talked about enough, is that before open admissions, we had the SEEK and the college discovery programs, which I think were very good programs. And I, they were not throughout CUNY. Uh, SEEK was at City College originally, and I don't remember when it started at Hunter. Uh, and I started at Lehman, I would say late 60s, 68 maybe. And I thought those were very good programs, and they provided excellent models for what would come. And I think that CUNY tried to follow those models to a degree, uh, and 75, everything stopped. Um, the other the other takeaway that I have is that, and I mentioned it in my comments, I thought the legislature was incredibly important to, to saving what I thought was very important, if not the best of CUNY. But my sense is I'm not sure they would have moved if there wasn't the activism on the part of the faculty and the students especially at the various institutions. I think that that was necessary in order to get the legislature to act and all of a sudden, and from where I sat, and that was not at the high levels of the university, there was a bonding between the, the legislature via the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus and I would say the people of City University. Well, what's on my mind a lot is uh, that I do I'm certain that the open admission struggle was a, a great people's victory. And uh, it's something that really deserves all of the attention possible for us uh, because it's, it, it extended uh, democracy uh, to into areas of education. And to make democracy real, it has to be extended into the areas of education and culture and the economy. Without a type of social democracy, there's no, the, uh, democracy is empty uh, for the working class and the poor. So it's a, it's a very advanced, advanced struggle. And uh, however, I think at this point, we have to, and I think we're, we're doing that here tonight, is uh, this evening, is to see that it's not just a question of access. Access is really critical, but I think what's occurred to a very, very large extent in the university is even though there's erosion with access, what, and, and that's something we have to be very concerned about. What's very disturbing is a kind of pervasive um, erosion of the kind of ideological and print, uh, underpinning, underpinnings of this. They're almost completely gone. Uh, the idea of, of having a pedagogy that is uh, culturally pluralist, that isn't a part of an Americanization project. Uh, the idea that there's really one education for everyone that everyone to be a citizen, you know, uh, not in a technical sense, but a citizen has to be a critical thinker, has to know history, has to know the general culture, as well as their own culture. A, a broad view, a liberal view of education, I think that's eroding rapidly everywhere. And uh, there's a kind of, a, uh, everything's becoming practical. You know, C. Wright Mill said, the American ideology is crackpot pragmatism. <laughs> you know, he got it right. And I think we have to struggle against that. We need to struggle more ideologically in the educational field to say really what is a pedagogy that's appropriate for a people's uh, college, for a people's university. And that it isn't just being in classrooms. It has to do with extending out into the community to see the community as a resource to interact with the community. This is lost. Mm -hmm. Why is it lost? 
And so this is a really a much more elaborate uh, question than I think we might start out with. And we have to bring it into these areas of the, the defense of the vision of a very progressive moment in American history, which entered into uh, the uh, construction of the city university and to look at uh, not just access and the demographics, as, as, as important as that is, we can't <coughs> minimize that, but, but really what is going on in the classrooms, what is the educational package, uh, and how does the college relate to community, et cetera. And I think that's part of, of what we really, are, I think are doing here tonight, but we have to maybe be very conscious of that. Thank you. Pedro. Well, I think my, my takeaway from it is that how important the student movement is. And because we don't have that student movement now, how um, weak our suggestions are in terms of what needs to be done because who's going to carry it out? What, the people who actually carried out all of this were the students. And I think uh, whatever it takes to create a student movement, to get a student movement go going again, et cetera, is very important uh, for political purposes as well as for ideological purposes. Um, and then the, the second thing part, uh, I think, is, is uh, what I learned from my experience at the Centro is how the university as an institution itself, how it's organized, works against the very things that you're talking about that this university needs to do. It's a contradiction. And it's a contradiction to democracy and the way it's run, the way it's organized, its purpose, et cetera. And we are getting further and further away from it. Uh, they're not serving the community, they're serving the economy. And who's, who's controlling the economy? So they're, they're making sure that the um, economy of the future that's going to employ less and less of us, uh, that we have a role in that. Well, I, don't, I think we should need a role in changing that. So, uh, But I think that's, that to me is, uh, I mean, the Centro is a good example of it. The Centro is now what it was fighting against in opposition 40 years ago. So it's uh, it's mm -hmm. that that I mean by itself it saddens you and makes you wonder where 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 is the future? Thank. Okay, you've all been very patient. I think what we'd like to do is, if you have questions, please line up at the microphone right here so we can hear it and this can be recorded and people who are seeing it. And we'd ask you to be disciplined and keep your questions, statements, and questions less than two minutes. No long speeches because we have another panel to do and we want to give the panelists a chance to respond. So anybody wants to ask a question, please feel free to come to the microphone. If no one does, I can ask another question to the panel. It's up to you. Please and make sure when you do, you identify yourself. Yeah, my name is Ellen Schrecker and I'm a historian who's actually writing about some of this stuff. And I have a question for all of the panelists who were there at that time. Um, what kind of opposition did open admissions uh, encounter in its early stages before the fiscal crisis? Um, I'm just curious, where did that opposition come from? It certainly has permeated Ameri uh, the rhetoric and conversation about open admissions. And I'm just wondering uh, what kind of memories people had about that opposition. Great question. Yeah. Um, and Charles, you wanna? Uh, I think Anthony really captured it. I mean, it was from 
uh, top to bottom. So if you look at City College, for example, we had literally almost fisticuffs with the faculty senate. I mean, they were those who were so absolutely incensed by what we were suggesting, you know, that they were ready to fight. Um, of course, the Board of Higher Education and the various trustees, the presidents, um, you know, when I said the switch from Buell Gallagher to President Copeland, I mean, he literally, you know, told each and every one of us at the negotiation table, I don't need more of uh, people like you. Um, I mean, that was part of the obvious. And then, of course, the more subtle thing were the students themselves. If you go back into the archives, we had physical encounters. City College had to be shut down a second time because when they reopened it with the assistance of the police and we came back in and we still kept protesting, you know, then there were encounters, you know, that were unfortunately, race, you know, racialistic. Black and Puerto Ricans, you know, fighting with white students. So that's top to bottom, the police department, the actual the candidates for mayor. We were all targets and many of us you know, suffered. Uh, David, I'm glad you reminded me of the losses that we've incurred. People's lives were shortened um, because of the pressures that were placed on them, the careers that were lost. So it was systemic. But, you know, that was really what I envisioned in terms of what was happening um, at, at City College, at least. I, I would I would support everything Charles is saying. And, and my perspective, um, particularly, and I, I mentioned it in my opening comments, there was not an embrace of open admissions at, at least at Lehman College, and I would suspect that was true at many of the other CUNY units. Um, there was, uh, I mean, Pedro used the good word, there was the tradition, uh, which a lot of people at the colleges had bought into. I mean, the faculty were incredibly proud of, of their program. Uh, they considered themselves, you know, as teaching at the, you know, the proletarian Harvards and, 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 and Vassars. Uh, and uh, they saw uh, open admissions as a threat. And I would say that that extended into a number of the students. And the administration was always cautious because, you know, they answered to the Board of Higher Education. We've already heard some important comments about the less than uh, trustworthiness of the Board of Higher Education. Um, I won't make any comments about the present Board of Higher Education. Uh, but uh, uh, back then, they were, they were dupl they, there, was, there was a lot of, uh, I think, cause for concern. And I think that one of the and Charles may, or David may have a difference of opinion, but I think not. I thought, I thought Buell Gallagher, who had his heart and his soul and his mind in the right place, was undermined by the Board of Higher Education. Absolutely. Anybody else? Yeah, I, I think Ostros was so special, as I mentioned before, that, that it was founded as an open admissions college, so obviously there couldn't be opposition to that, because that's what we were. And the faculty, uh, the founding faculty were hired based on, on their willingness uh, and uh, evidence of their support for the mission of the college. So we had really some very famous people that came to the college as uh, faculty. And uh, Pablo Cabrera was a very famous director, for example. And uh, Al Hollingsworth, a very important African-American artist. And many, many people who left tenured positions to come to a community college, but also political activists. I mean, I had been arrested and put in jail and lost my job in the whole nine yards. And, uh, and that wasn't, they didn't blink an eye. They didn't blink an eye. I mean, what had, had I thought had been the ruin of my life became a passport to really my life, <laughs> you know? It was a bridge to life, you know? 
all of that that hardship. I mean, what I had wept over really was uh, was was to make everything better for me. And but but so this was a very different situation in that sense. I think what I found disturbing was even in this extraordinarily progressive environment, uh, when I proposed, I was in, I was head of the union, and in the Senate Executive Committee. That was done, you know, that was, uh, uh, you know, by ex officio, and uh, and when I put forward a resolution, which I had to talk to people about, about a community uh, council. There was there was tremendous right. opposition everywhere, and this was not just racial. Uh, it was not. It was across the line. They did not want the community. They did not want the community in there. It was one of the most sorrowful moments I can tell you. And we had had the community helping us to win the building. That's how we got it. With those, uh, the the. The state legislators were elected not by us, they were elected by the community that was their, their constituents. And yet the idea that there would be some honorific or advisory committee that, you know, they wouldn't have votes in the Senate, right. you know, right. they right. couldn't stay. That was shouted down, shouted down. If it we didn't get to a vote. So I think even the point is, even in this very progressive setting, the limits are there about what the college is who it serves, and uh, what's its role in relationship to the community, and so on. We can get another couple of questions in, and maybe other the panelists who didn't speak this time can. Can you identify yourself, please? Uh, sure. Uh, Ken SD, Brooklyn College, and uh, thank you for your stories and the accounts. Uh, what strikes me, and if anyone wishes to comment further, is that sort of when you think about the 70s or even now, we say, ah, New York City, they'll do right by us, the officials and such, and Albany, ugh, Albany. But, but you're telling a different story about Albany officials uh, who actually, it seems by some accounts, did right by um, open admissions and everything that we're talking about. Anything more you could say about that is, I think it's really an intriguing aspect of this uh, large story. Talk about a little bit about the black and Puerto Rican caucuses. I think that caucus exists still, but it was a very different caucus in the 1970s. Pedro and and and, uh, and and David, who you didn't have a chance to speak. Um, the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus is now the Lati uh, Puerto Rican Latino Caucus and the African American Caucus. They're separate caucuses now. Um, there's a history behind that, but we don't have time to go to go. We don't have the time to go into that. But uh, I think yes, the the. Uh, they, they still are. They still can be a very critical partner in making sure CUNY lives up to its mission. And that's been sort of set aside for the, I mean, the last 10, 15, 20 years. They have not been a player in this. And uh, part of it is due to the politics in Albany and, you know, and here in New York. But part of it is due to the fact that we don't have that kind of relationship with those, those legislators anymore. Um, and in K through 12 education, they're much more engaged. But in higher education, they're not engaged anymore. Well, well, I've been going up to Albany lobbying um, on behalf of some of the interests in the Lower East Side, the East Village where I live. Uh, and Sheldon Silver, um, uh, a bunch of black and Puerto Rican legislators, they're really cool people. They can, they listen and they, uh, they'll talk to you. The trouble I had back in that time was with Mayor Lindsay directly himself, who was, very sensitive to this uh, issue, and uh, it was uh, not a good outcome. But I have to point out that um, I was um, in the civil rights movement uh, prior to that. So I had come from 
the South in 1965 with the Free Southern Theater. So this, dealing with these people in New York, they weren't out to, they wouldn't kill you necessarily. So that was kind of all right. You I know? like the necessarily. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, let's, let's try to have one more question, and because I think we want to wrap it up. And uh, Tahir? Uh, yeah, my name is Tahir. I'm a student here. Um, so I think I had a comment and then a question. So my comment was uh, in reference to something that came up today about um, the amount of money that the city university was getting at the time and the issue of access. So um, just to highlight and emphasize the fact that um, CUNY throughout the 60s is under great pressure to expand and is unable to. And the only way they can is actually to get funds that the city itself does not have and has to get it from the state. And increasingly it seeks state funding, but is always limited in its capacity to get those funds. Uh, so the state, Albany does give money, but it's only after a great amount of public pressure, political pressure from the city residents and interest you know, groups that lobby for this. Um, but still, SUNY at the time is getting about twice as much as what CUNY gets. And though they're uh, educating about the same number of students, right? So I think there's a, a story here about a very unequal distribution of money uh, within the state and among the, among the schools that existed. At the same time, there's this, you know, we said proletarian Harvard. I think one of the things that proletarian, a proletarian Harvard to me, suggests is a very meritocratic school, right? So you have you had a school. The mission of CUNY was uh, to educate the rich and the poor of the city for free, right? This is in its at its founding in 1847. So um, and it's only able to do this increasingly for a smaller number of people. It's become much more selective by the time open admissions comes in. That's one of the things that open admissions does. It opens up the floodgates. Um, to students who would not, not otherwise get in. Um, one thing I w had a question was like, well, what, someone said the tragedy, there was a tragedy, it was a tra like open admissions, there's a tragedy to it. And I guess I had a question like, what was that tragedy? You know, as in, we, you know, we won open admissions and then five years later, they did, they uh, imposed tuition. Is this the tragedy? I guess I'm, I guess I'm wondering if you can use it. So, yeah. Well, I, I, you, you, went, you covered a lot of ground there to hear. I mean, uh, I mean, we have to, going to be writing his dissertation. Yeah, yeah. On this very uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh, I think one thing is let's be clear that the that in the up until '75, the operating budget from for City University primarily came from the City of New York. Okay, they funded the city of New York. They funded City University, and they, they started it back in 1847, and they were the primary funders of, on the operational side. And in the early 70s, uh, and I, uh, as I said earlier, I think they provided a lot of important funding, increased funding for open admissions, as well as the expansion of the university. I mean, up until 1968, it was still basically the four senior colleges and the Graduate Center and, and, and several of the community colleges. After 1968, you have Richmond College and you have John Jay College and you have uh, Baruch College. All of these are relatively new instit institutions in terms of their own self-governance. They were part of other entities. But so there was this tremendous expansion and investment in CUNY from the late 60s into the early 70s. And it all came crashing down in 1975 
when the city fiscal crisis came. And so it wasn't just CUNY, it was everything that the, CUNY, that the city was spending on came to a halt. Uh, and CUNY was part of that. I don't think there was this conscientious effort to say, you know, the fiscal crisis happened because of open admissions. It happened because of lots of spending that was going on throughout the city of New York and all of its agencies. And I think the tragedy is, at least in my mind, and, and maybe my colleagues would have something else to say, was that uh, the, the whole fiscal foundation of the city of New York collapsed, and we never ended up getting funding for the open admissions after that. So we were left with an access to higher education, but we no longer had the the way to to, to seek success with it. I hate to bring this to and an this end, was, this a me, other panel. I just want to mention real quickly, one of the other tragedies was that so many people died. There's a film on the strike at Columbia University that from SVA, short while film. Most of the people are still alive. Hardly anyone from the city college is alive, and that's one of the tragedies. Uh, another tragedy is that there's no African-American studies to show for this. There's nothing, no development that was able to come down to the years higher and fire and really develop something that we could be dealing with today. And that's also true for Latino in terms of 34th Street and 5th Avenue and the downtown city colleges. That's a tragedy to me. It's really hard to 